The fifth chapter of John is our text today, beginning at verse 1. I want to read through verse 14. From John 5, verses 1 through 14. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five or porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in this sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water stirred up, but... While I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well, took up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. I was watching a television news report a while back. I think it was of, a, of an airline crash, some tragedy. And these reporters were in this press of people trying to, to get a response from this person who was a family member of a victim of this tragedy. And they were wanting to get some kind of response from this victim of this tragedy. And this reporter shoved this uh, microphone in the face of this person and asked, how do you feel? And I'm thinking to myself, that's got to be the dumbest question I have ever heard in my life. If Guinness has a book of world records on dumb questions, that's got to be the absolute dumbest and probably in that book, I've got some questions that I've asked, if there are, you know, there is such a book. Haven't you ever asked dumb questions? And as soon as you got the question out, you were thinking to yourself, that is a dumb question. But there are some questions that appear dumb, which are really not so dumb. And that's true in this text. When Jesus asked this man, do you want to get well? That seems like a dumb question. 
Because after all, he'd been in this condition for 38 years, just lying by this, in the, by this pool, waiting for some angel to come and stir the waters because there was this belief that when the angel came and stirred the waters, the first person there got healed. And for 38 years, this guy was lying around this pool waiting to be healed. It was the most deplorable place in Jerusalem. It would, like, it would have been like being at an outpatient uh, department of a slum hospital. It was filled with suffering, disease, deplorable humanity. And he had been there for 38 years. Isn't that a pretty dumb question? Do you want to get well? It'd be like walking in one of these refugee camps in Jordan with one plane ticket and saying, I wonder if there's anybody here who wants a flight to freedom. You better watch out or you'd have been trampled underfoot if you did that dumb question. It'd be like you sitting around the waiting room at the emergency section of, the, of uh, Bryan Memorial Hospital bleeding to death for all day long and people pass you by and finally somebody comes up to you and says, do you want some help? And you want to say, no, I just bleed because I like the color red. You know, I, want to, I just like to hang around these emergency rooms and watch people work. Of course I want to be, well, I want to be helped. But it, not such a dumb question after all. And we're going to see it in just a minute. Because this was our Lord's way of making people whole. Notice that He didn't say, do you want to be healed? He said, do you want to be well? The word in the King James is, do you want to be whole? It's a word that means soundness and completeness. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. It comes from the Latin word, abunda. It means wave upon wave. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have life wave upon wave. And He saw these people with legs and they wouldn't take them anywhere. And He saw people with life but no health. And He saw people in a meager, terrible, deplorable existence. Do you want to be well? Perhaps you've come this morning into this place and the greatest desire that you've ever had in your life is a desire to be whole, to be complete, and to find life wave upon wave. This text divides into three sections. Jesus speaks three times. The first time to ask a question that indicates a desire. The second time to give a command that reveals a demand. And the third time to issue a warning that suggests a danger. First of all, the question, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be well? You might say, well, doesn't everybody? I mean, doesn't everybody want wholeness, completion, life, wave upon wave? Well, I don't know about that. I know some people that seem to enjoy poor health. I would tell you about my friend in Seminole, Texas. She was either she had either had been sick, she was being sick, or she was getting ready to be sick. I mean, she enjoyed poor health. And I went to see her one day in the hospital, and I just started into her room. I heard her talking on the telephone. She was laughing and giggling and talking. I'm thinking to myself, I I, I won't interrupt her. I'll just wait out here till. She hangs up, and I just listened to her. She was laughing and talking. When she hung up, I knocked on the door. little voice said, Who is it? I said, Pastor Tidwell. Oh, oh. She said, Come in. When I, when I went in, all I could see were two eyes. She had the cover pulled up over her nose, 
and she was just kind of burrowed down underneath it. And oh, she said, oh, I'm so glad you came. I'm thinking to myself, she's enjoying this. I've been sick, not, not, not real sick, just sick enough for Margaret to bring soup to bed with, you know, to the bed, and adjust the television and, and answer all the telephone calls and run all the errands and, you know, and, and tuck me in, just make all this fuss over me. I'm thinking to myself, I kind of hate to get over this. What, what Jesus was saying is, watch this, He's saying, are you ready for the responsibility of wholeness? Many a beggar has lost a good living by being healed. Content with idleness, lying in the cool shade of the porches in Bethesda. He didn't have to toil in the sweat of the, of the heat of the Middle East. And he could exercise a certain amount of control over those who fussed over him. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, are you ready to pay the price for wellness? Are you ready for the responsibility of wholeness? For with the ability comes the responsibility. You say, I wish I could witness. No, you don't. Do you understand the responsibility that comes with witnessing? You say, I wish I could know how to witness. No, you don't really. You can, we can have a wind school and EE and CWT. We have all kinds of training. You never come. Don't say that. You don't really want to know how to witness. And there have been people who are saying, oh, I wish we could have a revival in our church and we pray for revival. Do you really want that? You don't really want... You understand what the cost of revival is? Are you ready for the responsibility of that? You know what that involves? It means that you're going to have to turn from the old way. You're going to have to turn loose of the old things. It involves repentance and sacrifice. Do you really want that? No, you don't. Notice what wholeness involves. He didn't say, do you want to walk? He said, do you want to be whole? You see, some of us say to the Lord, Lord... I've got this little area in my life I need some help on. Now, this little area over here I can take care of. I want you to come and deal in this little area of my life, but I, I can take care of the rest. Oh, Lord, I want you to fix my marriage. And the Lord says, well, what about this room that's closed to me? Well, no, Lord, not that room, just this marriage over here. I'm having a problem here. I can take care of the rest. Lord, I've got some kind of financial financial burden, financial problem. Lord, could you just come and get me out of this financial mess I'm in? Well, what about this closet over here that's been locked to me all along? No, Lord, not that. You see what Jesus is saying? Well, watch this carefully. He's saying, it's all or nothing. He's saying, you give me your life in its totality. You lay your life before me. Take your hands off of all of it. It's all or nothing. Do you really want that? Do you really want somebody to walk into your life and claim all of it so that every aspect of your life is under His authority and control? You better be sure you're ready for the responsibility that comes with ability. That's the question. Then there's the command. He says to him, get up and walk. Now, he didn't discuss the impossibility of the situation with him, and he didn't show him pity, although he felt what this man had felt like no other person had ever. And this man who had been lying there for 38 years knew that Jesus knew what he was experiencing. He knew that Jesus understood what he was going through like nobody had ever before. Well, you see, there is no aspect of your life 
with which our Lord cannot identify. You say, I came from meager circumstances, meager means. He was born in Nazareth. You say, I came from humble parentage. His parents were peasants. You say, I don't have much of an education. You're somewhat intimidated by that. He had no real formal training outside of his home. You, you say, I've been misunderstood. He was misjudged, unabated. Everybody misunderstood him. You say, I've known rejection. So did he. He was rejected by everybody, even the people in his own hometown, the, re the religious leaders, the government officials, the common folks all rejected him. You say, I've lost a loved one. He loved and lost Lazarus and wept. You say, I have a problem with my family. His own mother and his sisters and his brothers thought he was crazy. You say, I've loved somebody and have not been loved in return. Love flowed from his mouth, streamed from his eyes, and reached out from his heart, and every time he loved, it was spurned. He knows everything you've ever felt. But it wasn't pity this boy needed, this man needed. And so he gave him the command, get up and walk. And it wasn't until he obeyed that he was whole. You, you know what he did that day? He trusted and obeyed Jesus. And you can't separate the two. Whoever you trust, you obey. And whomever you obey, you trust. What is the issue here? Are you listening? The issue is, whom do you trust? The name G. Gordon Liddy is familiar, isn't it, of Watergate conspiracy? G. Gordon Liddy once wrote, I found within myself everything I need and will ever need for life. I'm a man of faith. My faith is in George Gordon Liddy. I've never failed me. You and I know the rest of the story. That didn't turn out that way. The disgraced Ivan Bosky is an incarnation of self-trust. Born in Detroit of Russian immigrants, he had a burning desire to excel. He did hundreds of push-ups at one time trying to impress his peers. He married the rich daughter of a real estate tycoon. His in-laws called him Ivan the Bum. He drifted in out of three colleges until he got his law degree, and at the age of 29, he wound up on Wall Street. He worked, he slept two or three hours a night. He got up in the morning at 4 o'clock and stood behind a desk punching the buttons of a 300-line telephone console. He craved coffee and more information. And it didn't matter that he had a position on Wall Street. It didn't matter to him. He worked 20 hours a day, had a 10-bedroom house on 100 acres near New York City. It didn't matter to him that he had an estate worth over $200 million. He never really felt like he had arrived, and he kept driving himself until finally he was convicted of insider trading, trading stock with illegal information, and everything he dreamed of came crashing down, and his life became dim, diminished, and deserted. For one, somewhere along the line, Ivan Bosky trusted in Ivan Bosky, and he failed. The issue is, whom do you trust? I've noticed that before our Lord could do anything with this boy, this man, he had to give up hope in the pool. And he had to give up hope in the people who would get him there. You know what Jesus is doing? He's telling him, he's showing him that before he can really help him, he has to come to the place of absolute impossibility. Let me, let me tell you something. You know where you'll find Jesus? You'll always find Jesus where you need Him. 
And the place where you need him is always the place of absolute impossibility. I heard Ron Dunn tell about he was doing a conference out in California and there was this guy in this church where he was, where he was teaching, preaching, who was this most dynamic guy. He was just on fire for God. He said one night they had dinner together and this guy asked him, he said, Brother Dunn, where, where are you from? He said, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And he said, the guy's face lit up like the sun. He said, I spent some time in the city jail in Fort Smith, Arkansas. He said, well, tell me about it. He said, well, it was in the early 60s, and he said, I and some of my friends just bumming around over the country. He said, I spent 20 years in and out of communes, drinking whiskey and smoking dope. And he said, for some reason, we just drifted into Fort Smith one Saturday. We'd been drinking all day, so we drank all night. He said, I don't understand uh, to this day what a school bus loaded with kids was doing on Sunday morning out on the highway, but he said, we ran into that school bus totally stoned and drunk. He said, the cops came and they weren't too happy. He said, they threw me in jail. And he said, I was sitting on my cot in jail Sunday in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and I heard the clanging of the doors. He said, three guys walked in, well-dressed, clean-cut guys, and they said, fellas, we're from the First Baptist Church, and we've come to tell you about Jesus. He said, they didn't preach to us. They just kind of told us their testimony. He said, Brother Dunn, sitting on a cot in Fort Smith Jail, I found Jesus. And Ron Dunn said, I wanted to say, yeah, right where you needed him. Where is the place of your absolute impossibility? Is it some relationship you've gotten yourself into and you said, I'll never get into this? You never meant for it to go this far, but it has and you can't do anything about it? Is it some habit started out so harmless, so superficial, so non-threatening? You said, I can quit this anytime I want to, but you can't. Now you find yourself up to your neck in quicksand trapped. Is it some bitterness that's just growing in you, souring, so that the horizon of your life is filled with thoughts of revenge? Is it some past failure, some sin, some lapse you said would never happen to you? And now every day is clouded with a realization that you've crushed something you can't fix and you've broken something you can't mend. That's the place of your absolute impossibility. And if you'll look, you'll find Jesus right there. And he told him to do an absolute thing absolutely impossible thing. He said, get up and walk. The man just got through telling him he couldn't. That's the way Jesus does. He strides into the place of our absolute impossibility and shows us that when we give our lives to Him, we can. He said, stretch forth your hand to the man with a withered hand. The very thing couldn't do. And He said to Lazarus, come out of there and live. The very thing He couldn't do. And so he gives an absolute command that's absolutely impossible. And have you ever noticed that that command of absolute impossibility is always initiated by God? Now listen to me carefully. In very few lives is the precise moment of change, does the precise moment of change occur when you're expecting it? Hear me now. One morning Moses got up and he went out to the back side of the desert like he'd done for 40 years. Same old desert, same old sheep, same old bush. 
And all of a sudden, it exploded with God. And it became not just the same old bush, it became the Shekinah bush, the bush that was on fire with the Shekinah of God. Every morning, this guy woke up, same old pool, same old suffering humanity, same old porches, this day, different Jesus there. You may have come into this place just like you've always done, same church, same old pew. You always sit in the same pews, same old pew. If you're not sitting in the same pew you've been sitting in for 40 years, somebody beat you to it. Same old pew, same old preacher. Today, different. For in the midst of this impossible situation where you have found yourself, our Lord emerges and in that precise moment of change makes all things new and says to you, get up and leave that relationship. Walk out of that habit. Christ has set you free. Turn loose of that bitterness, for He brings peace and joy. And walk away from that past, that failure, for Christ has forgiven and all things are new. Get up and walk. This is the precise moment of decision. Do it immediately. Now you say, well, I'll walk tomorrow. I don't feel like walking today. It's not a matter of how you feel. I don't feel like it. It's not a matter of that. It's a matter of obedience to the command of our Lord and doing it because He commanded it. It's a matter of saying to the Lord, All right, Lord, I don't understand this. I've been trying to do this all my life. I can't. But I'm surrendering in the position that's impossible. I'm surrendering to obey You for the rest of my life. Here's my life. Do it now. Some of you may not be familiar with the name Jean-Paul Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre is a contemporary existentialist. And he's led so many people to disillusioned people to, to despair and to renounce God. Jean-Paul Sartre had an experience one time when he was a young man in which God spoke to him and he turned away. Listen to what he says. Listen to this. He said, I maintain public relations with the Almighty, but privately I cease to associate with Him. Only once did I have the feeling that He existed. I had been playing with matches and burned a small rug. I was in the process of covering up my crime when suddenly God saw me. I felt His gaze, in, gaze inside my head and on my hands. I whirled about in the bathroom horribly visible, a live target, indignation saved me. I flew into a rage against so crude an indiscretion. I blasphemed. Now listen to what he said. I've just related the story of a missed vocation. I needed God. He was given to me. I, I received Him without realizing that I was seeking Him. Failing to take root in my heart, He vegetated in me for a while, then He died. Whenever anyone speaks to me about him today, I say, with the easy amusement of an old bull who meets a farmer bell, 50 years ago, had it not been for that misunderstanding, that mistake, the accident that separates us, there might have been something between us. Right now, 
is our Lord stands in the midst of the impossible situation and says to you, walk. Do it now so that ten years from now you won't look back and say, I almost did, but I didn't. One last thought, and I'll just brush it. There is a warning that indicates a danger. Jesus found this man later, and evidently the man did not feel whole. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, You are whole. You are sound. You are complete. You are well. Now go and keep yourself that way. Or else, keep yourself whole unless something worse happens. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, man, if you don't keep yourself whole, something worse than being sick for 38 years could happen to you. You know what it was? You know what it is? Listen to me. There's some of you here this morning who have been made whole. And you've known life wave upon wave. And you have found this completeness that is in Christ Jesus. But you've lost it. Now we're not talking about losing your salvation. We're talking about the fact that some of you have tasted of the heavenlies. You have experienced this life upon life, but somehow something happened and and the pressures and the things have crept in and you've lost that joy. And you've lost that power. And you're tortured and you're unhappy and you're miserable. And you're thinking it's worse now than it was before I was saved. And when I came to this point in this sermon in the first service, I looked into the face of a person who said back to me by her face, you're talking to me. It's true. That we can taste of the heavenly gift and we can know life wave upon wave and we can find completeness and something happens, comes creeping in and all of a sudden it's worse than before we were ever even saved. And so Jesus comes to you and says, you need to come back home. Let's pray together. Our Father, we can identify with the question because we're not really sure that we understand the responsibility that comes with wholeness And we can understand, we can identify with a second command because we know that you have met us at the place of absolute impossibility 
and have called on us for an impossible response. And we have found the possibility in the midst of the impossible. And we can identify with a third point. We have all drifted away. And we are not at the point where we have been. And we all need, we all need you. And now may our decision today, whatever that decision be, be in response to your command. For I pray in Jesus' name.